you're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Tom Wood brought us a great message titled, The God of Grace. Let's check it out. Good morning, Word of Life. So glad that you're able to come and be a part of service with us this morning. Glad that you were able to take part of your weekend and be here with us. Um, I know we've talked a lot about Carols and Coco already as part of service today, but I want to take a moment and just ask everybody in the church to thank and give gratitude to all the people that made it possible on Friday night. It was a wonderful event. Thank you so much, everybody. And uh, it took almost 100 people doing a variety of different things to make it possible. And it really was a great event. So many good things came out of that. So for the 100 or so people that were a part of that to make that possible, thank you so, so much. Um, But I wanted to take a moment and do something um, that I know is important. I know it means a great deal to a number of you here. And I'm going to share some jokes. I heard some groans. I'm not sure why. So there's a level of sophistication, intellectual. All right. A gingerbread man went to the doctors complaining of a sore knee. The doctor asked him, have you tried icing it? (laughs) All right, it's it's only up from here. What did one Christmas ornament say to the other? (laughs) Wanna hang out? (laughs) All right, this is the last one. I haven't got many, but I did indeed save the best till last. What do you call a kid who doesn't believe in Santa? A rebel without a clause. <laughs> anyway. All right. So in getting ready for this morning, and getting ready about, you know, wanting to bring something that's hopefully is helpful and encouraging and possibly even challenging and something that's going to be, uh, you know, hopefully is meaningful, especially with the idea of, you know, Christmas right around the corner and all the different things that go into that. And as I was thinking about it, this idea about what we deserve kind of came to me and it started to prompt some questions is, you know, this idea of what we deserve. And there are many things in life that we do deserve. The Bible teaches about sowing and reaping, and what you sow, you will also reap, and the outcomes, the cause and effect, and the book of Proverbs is full of these things. We can also see from the teaching in the Bible that if you live with wisdom and responsibility, that life will likely go favorably for you. If we work hard and we're not lazy, if we're an honest citizen, if we're a good neighbor, then good things will generally come our way. We may look at something in our lives like a promotion or a good marriage or a healthy retirement account or a degree or our standing in the community. And we can conclude that these good things have come our way because of what we've done. We've worked hard to get there or we've done good things. We've made good choices to help get us the good things that we have in life. And I don't think that that is incorrect. But there was one thing that I would say in this idea of what we deserve and what is right that we have it, and it's, it's, it's our own effort that got something to us, is this idea of looking to the cross of Jesus. There's not a single person anywhere in the world that can look at the cross and can contemplate what it meant for the Son of God to be on there 2,000 years ago and to have a rational response of, I deserve that. There are other things in life where we can conclude it's, it's right. Yes, this is because of what I did. This is my good choices. These are my good efforts that got me here. This is me working hard. That got me here, but we cannot look at the cross and conclude, I deserve that. We hear messages about the cross and Jesus dying for us. The weight that's in that is incredible, that he went to the cross. It was for you and for me. Not one of us can look at that, can think about and reflect on the torture that Jesus endured, the pain that he went through, that he went willingly, that he endured it all. 
and our honest response being, I deserve that. And if we get a hold of this, that the cross is the greatest expression of love, the greatest expression of grace and forgiveness that any one of us can imagine, it will change everything in our lives. I fully expect that decades from now, I will still be completely amazed and filled with wonder at the grace of God that was demonstrated on the cross. I fully expect that for the rest of my life, I will be both logically bewildered and emotionally overwhelmed whenever I consider the grace of God. The message of grace will never get old, will never be stale, and will never be irrelevant. There's a standard definition of the word grace if you look in any Bible dictionaries or you do any Google searches or anything like that. The standard definition of grace is simply the unmerited favor of God. The unmerited favor of God. The term, the grace of God, is a way of describing the manner in which God deals with us. It describes his motives and his intentions. Understanding the word grace helps us understand how and why God is working in the lives of people. I've got a longer definition that I've kind of compiled from Bible dictionaries and my own kind of reflections. The longer definitions is that grace is the acceptance of those who cannot earn or do not qualify for acceptance. Grace is showing goodness to those who have proven they deserve otherwise. It is grace that heals our relationship with God and makes an eternity with Him possible. It is only because of grace that we have the strength to endure and maintain our restored relationship with God. Grace rewrites the story of both the reject and the rebel, the victim and the oppressor, the forgotten and the idolized, the fearful and the aggressive. Grace is God's remedy to a broken world. Grace is what we need and grace is what we have, all because of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Amen. Now there's so much that could be said on the topic of grace and the theme of grace. There are all kinds of Bible passages we could draw from. I want to share a few just by way of introduction. This is Peter speaking in Acts 15. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. In Romans 11, but if it is by grace, God's unmerited favor, it is no longer on the basis of works. It is no longer on the basis of our best efforts. It is no longer on the basis of us trying our best. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It would not be a gift, but a reward for works. And then in 2 Timothy, for God called us, uh, saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. To be saved, as we just read, is to be rescued from a life apart from God, is to have our relationship with the creator of the universe restored and whole, not only here on earth, but also into eternity. We cannot do this by ourselves. No matter how hard we work, no matter how disciplined we strive to be, it's only because God initiates and offers forgiveness that that broken relationship between us and the Father can be repaired. And this was all accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus. There is not a single person who can claim they deserve this. It is the ultimate demonstration of love. It is grace and grace alone. Nobody deserves the grace of God, but it's offered to everyone. Nobody deserves the grace of God, but it is offered to everyone. We just read that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of Jesus. Not because of our own efforts and works, but by accepting an undeserved gift. And that gift changes every aspect of our lives. 
The message of Jesus can be talked about in many different ways, but at its core, the message of Jesus is God solving a problem. And just like anything else, small problems aren't fixed by small solutions. On the cross, Jesus addressed the most severe problem of all, the separation of humanity from God because of sin. And here's what I've learned about people. If you don't care about the problem, you won't care about the solution. For today, we're gonna be mostly in the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians is a letter that was written by a man named Paul and was written to a church in a city called Ephesus. And the passage we're gonna be reading, it's a smaller part of a much larger conversation. But this passage we're gonna be in today, it gives great insight into the grace of God. So we're gonna be in Ephesians, starting in chapter two, verse one. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclination of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. I wanna consider the severity of what we just read. Paul writes that the church was dead, it writes that they were disobedient and the many sins, that they were obeying the devil, that they were following the desires of their sinful nature, that they were subject to God's anger. There's a heavy weight to what Paul is getting across to the church. This is not nice, polite stuff. This is Paul highlighting the enormous problem that people have outside of the grace of God, the severity that people are up against. And this isn't a warning about being some extremely evil person. It's rather the dangers of being normal. These are some of the things that Paul wrote, just like the rest of the world. All of us used to live that way, just like everyone else. This is not about being some extreme, nefarious, or malevolent person. This is asking us to think differently about being normal. What we just read is extremely severe. Paul describes that the pre-Christian status of the people he's writing to as dead. And this is obviously not meant to be understood as a physical death, but rather a spiritual death. It describes a separation from the source of life, an alienation from the one who gives life. Consequently, because they're cut off from the author of life, they have no desire and no ability to live in fellowship with God. The Bible painfully talks about living without God as empty, but there is the promise of life. This runs throughout the message of Jesus in the prodigal son. We see when he comes home, the father exclaims, my son was dead and is now alive. Jesus taught, those who hear my word and believe have passed from death to life. But that is the severity of the message of Jesus, from death to life. It goes on Ephesians 2, starting in verse 2. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. I didn't want to take the time and just skim over today that Paul is giving a warning about obeying the devil. A few things to keep in mind as we talk about this, of course, is a strange thing to hit on on a Sunday morning. But the reality in the existence of the devil is true based on what the Bible teaches. What's not true is that the devil is not an equal match for God. The story is that the devil or Satan was an angel who liked the idea of receiving some of the worship directed at God for himself. And what happened next is the devil fell from heaven like lightning, instantly. There wasn't some intense standoff. It wasn't some close cosmic wrestling match. In an instant, you're out. And he fell like lightning. 
A helpful way to, a helpful way to think about this is to take into consideration Adam and Eve and what happened at the very beginning, all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. And there's a helpful but imperfect analogy that I want to share with you. So if you can imagine that God has built a house, it's perfect, runs well, there's no problems, everything about this house is great. God then invites Adam and Eve to be tenants of the house. They don't pay rent, everything works perfectly. And Adam and Eve are responsible for making sure everything is maintained, they get to pick out the decor and the furnishings. It's everything they could ever ask for. The house is a true blessing. But remember, God owns the house. He built the house. It's his house. He let Adam and Eve live there rent-free, and they enjoy it, and they love having God as the father who gave them the home. But there's a tree in the yard. God asked them not to eat the fruit from the tree. If they ate from the tree, they would start to think that they could be in charge of the house and not need the father, that they would start to be able to figure things out by themselves. A simple disobedience would change everything. Everyone agrees, and for a time, this works out perfectly. One day... Eve's hanging out in the yard, sees the tree, and the devil, who was kicked out of heaven like lightning, convinces her to try the fruit that she's not supposed to eat. She tries it and gets Adam to give it a try. What Adam and Eve didn't appear to understand is now they've invited the devil to move into the house. Now he's the landlord. They've handed residency over to him. They broke the contract, and now he's snuck in. Now they have to sublet from him. He moves into the master bedroom, kicks them out, he takes over the house and is a nightmare to live with. He has no regard for Adam and Eve. He's constantly causing drama. The house that was once upon a time a joy to live in is now hard work and a drag. The house that used to feel safe and secure is now hostile and unfair. Just keeping the house running is backbreaking work. Everyone keeps blaming each other for stuff breaking in the house. There's constantly a level of fear and uncertainty that wasn't there before. The people don't trust each other like they used to. They start treating each other terribly. And God, the builder of the house, watches and is devastated that the gift of the house is being ruined. That the home that was supposed to be a joy is now a thankless and backbreaking task. Just to survive another day is devastating work. And this is how it keeps going. As Adam and Eve have kids and future generations come, it only gets worse. The people forget what the father was like and instead start listening to what the landlord they're subletting from says. The house is filled with lies and selfishness. The devil is angry at God and is enjoying ruining his house and acting like he's in charge of the house that was given to the people that God loves so much. Some people tried to enjoy living in the house by acting like the landlord, the devil. Others didn't want to fit in and tried to live in the house in a way that the original builder, the father, wanted them to. But it proved so difficult while subletting from the devil. God recognized that the tenants have been completely corrupted by the sin that the devil introduced them to. There was no other way for them to clean up the house. There was no way for them to be able to kick out the devil. There was no way they could make up for all the terrible things that happened in the house. The people gave up their right to live rent-free in the home. They invited the devil to come in and act like a landlord. They had broken their agreement and were indebted to God. Until it was repaid in full, no matter what, they couldn't repay and they couldn't kick out the devil. But then the Christmas story. God becomes a resident of the house by sending his son. The son doesn't owe the devil any rent. He owns the house. He starts teaching the people in the house what it can be like to live without the devil as a landlord. He starts promising that people can start living with the original homeowner and builder again. On the cross, 
Jesus gave people the right to live without needing to answer to the landlord, but rather in right relationship with the home's builder again. When Jesus rose again on the first Easter morning, he issued the eviction papers, and the devil knows his time is up. The devil is defeated. He knows he's defeated. He knows his future is in the pit of hell. But he's a sore loser and is trying to disrupt people coming home as much as possible. Living in the home with him as the landlord is miserable, but he keeps lying and convincing people that living like that is the ultimate key to happiness. The grace of God undoes each and every lie of the worst landlord imaginable. Now this analogy, it's certainly not perfect, but please remember that the devil is not comparable to Jesus, either in power or authority. The devil's future is decided. He is a sore loser. But his time as a landlord of the world is coming to an end. The devil is not to be feared, but rather rejected. Now, Paul, he also writes here about God's anger. I want to say this to you, and I'm going to say this twice just for effect. Something they teach you in Bible college. The message of Jesus doesn't make sense until you concede that the judgment of God is correct. I'll say it again. The message of Jesus doesn't make sense until you concede that the judgment of God is correct. Until we're willing to admit and we're willing to be honest that I have a list of regrets. I have things that I'm ashamed of. That in many moments of my life I have pushed God away and rejected him. That his judgment against me would be correct, fair, and justified. But his love for me, his love for you, his love for all humanity is greater than we can imagine. Because he is perfect, justice needed to happen. So he sent his son to take on the sin of the world, receive the punishment and justice of God, so that the slate could be wiped clean. God loved humanity so much that he became humanity, so that he could pay the price for us, the price that we could never pay ourselves. This is what it means to care about the problem. To be deeply troubled by God's judgment against me is to appreciate the problem that Jesus came to fix. If I will appreciate, I will understand, and I will accept the problem that I am facing, then to hear the message of Jesus can only mean I respond with incredible joy. In this passage, what we've been reading, Paul is writing to the Ephesians in a past tense. He's talking about people that have gone from death to life, that the devil and his schemes have been defeated, that they no longer needed to live in fear of God's anger because of the cross. This starts off as bad news, but the message of Jesus is good news. The message of Jesus is good news that these are now, for these Ephesian Christians and for Christians everywhere, this is in the past tense. This is done, this is gone, this is over. We are no longer living in death, but rather we are living in life. The enemy and his schemes have been defeated. We no longer need to live in fear because of God's anger, because all of that was poured out on the sun on the cross. And we fast forward. We fast forward a few verses. There's a few verses later on, Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We are God's masterpiece, a new creation. Despite all that's stacked against us, he calls us his masterpiece, loved and treasured and a new creation. He is the only one who is able to create something out of nothing. He is the only one who can initiate life from nothing. In the creation account from Genesis, there was no human participation. 
No person can even begin to share the credit of God's creation. Similarly, in our new creation, it's God that created new life out of nothing. No one can take credit. And now we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We can live in the plans that he has for us. Faith produces works. Love performs labors. Not as some kind of spiritual puppet, but as someone that's been made alive. Our behavior and our conduct change, not through compulsion or force, but in the proper response to the goodness and love shown to us. We read about the fruit of the Spirit, and it's talked about often, that we can now, with God working in our hearts and His grace stirring and moving us, we can live with love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control just flowing out of our lives. What we just read is this is an extreme low, the severity of the problem that you and I are up against. And then we read about the extreme high as we read about God has promised that we can be a new creation, we can live in a newness of life, and we've got good things that he's planned for us, good things that you and I can live in. So much so that I would say that the phrase good news, which is typically used to talk about the message of Jesus, is wildly incompetent. This isn't good news, it's the greatest news anywhere ever. Good news doesn't begin to describe what Jesus did for you and me. The good news of Jesus, the greatest news of all time, the message of the cross, solves the greatest problem humanity has. The good news is an inadequate description, but the severity of the problem only makes us appreciate the size of solution that God needed to have so that we could come back in a relationship with him. Let me read the first portion of Ephesians again, just to repeat just how severe the problem is. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. Dead, disobedient, many sins, obeying the devil, following the sinful desires of our sinful nature, subject to God's anger. But a few verses later, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. From the extreme severity of the problem of sin and evil in the world and how that's affecting us and affecting our own hearts, to being a new creation in God, the question I want to put to you is, what happened in the middle? to go from one to the other. What happened in the middle? How did it go from desperate despair and doom and gloom and judgment and devastation to being God's masterpiece and being created anew and being able to fulfill God's good plan for us? What caused the change? What happened between verse three and verse 10? My friends, what happened was grace. Undeserved, life-changing grace. Ephesians 2, 4, but God... But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in future ages of examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit from this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. 
What caused this change? Grace, undeserved, life-changing grace. That God is rich in mercy, that he loves us so much, that he gave us life, that he has shown kindness to us, and now we can be saved. And we can't take credit for any of it. It is undeserved. It is an unearned gift from God. There is nothing that we have, nothing to claim this kindness. It is grace and grace alone. And this changes everything. Changes everything. It's the kindness and mercy and love that motivated God to send his son so that he would go to the cross. One of the passages I read this past week as I was doing some study for this says this in a commentary that I read. In light of the distressing plight humanity faces because of the painful, uh, powerful chains of their slavery, the but God of this next paragraph shines a brilliant ray of hope. The God of creation is not only just, but he is merciful, exceedingly so. For those who are painfully aware of their multiple sins and their inability to escape the influence of the world, the devil and the flesh, this is overwhelmingly good news. The central point of this passage is that God has made them alive. This can be appreciated and fully understood only if the readers first know the full extent of their predicament prior to God's gracious action towards them. It is difficult to conceive of a set of sharper contrasts than those Paul presents in this passage, from death to life, from the sentence of God's intense anger to an experience of his incomparable love. From death to life, from the sentence of God's intense anger to an experience of his incomparable love, from a life controlled by various forces of evil to a life sustained by the grace of God. This is the wonderful message of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 again. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This is the power of the cross to go from death to life, disobedience to passionate obedience, from sinful to forgiven, obeying the devil to rejecting the devil, following the desires of our sinful nature to embracing our new nature, subject to God's anger to a healed, healthy, and restored relationship with the Father. And all of this is only because of Jesus, the grace of God that was demonstrated on the cross, the suffering that Jesus undertook so he could pay the price that I could never pay and that will always amaze me. We couldn't earn this for ourselves. He did it for us and gave it to us as a free gift. So none of us can boast, none of us can claim credit, and none of us can make a sensible claim that we deserve the Son of God going to the cross for us. I've, um, I've shared this story before. It happened to me probably 14 years ago now. When I first moved to the United States, um, Megan was working at a coffee shop and I hadn't got my green card yet so I couldn't work so I used to spend all my time hanging out at the coffee shop just chilling, reading books and Bible and you know, drinking a lot of coffee. Um, I'll tell you what man, eight hours is a long time to chill in a coffee shop but I got pretty friendly with the people Megan worked with you know, when I was there so often. And one of the guys that I kind of became friendly with and enjoyed you know, chit-chatting with is, uh, is a younger guy, maybe 17, 18. 
And this young guy, his dad was a pastor in the area of a large church, but the, the church was extremely traditional, extremely religious, and very sort of bent on you know, rules and regulations and right things and wrong things and all that kind of stuff. And this young kid, he was wrestling with his faith. He wasn't sure what to make of it all. So we asked if he could have lunch with me. I said, absolutely. He said, great, I'm paying. I was like, even better. I said, where are we going? He said, Taco Bell. I was like, all right. So he's sitting Taco Bell and we're chatting away and he's telling me and his concerns and the things about faith that he's finding confusing and the questions that he's wrestling with and you know, all these uncertainties that he has about God and himself and how it all works together. And, and as he's talking, I had a realization and that realization has stuck with me. And the more that I've sort of reflected on this, the more I see this prevalent in the generation that you and I are a part of today. And the simple revelation was it, it, he contradicted what I'd heard so many preachers of the generation before us saying. See, preachers from the generation before us, they will come and they will talk about the grace of God. And they will correctly, I'm not saying this is incorrect, they will correctly assume that the people in the congregation, the people that don't know God, that are listening to the message of Jesus for the first time, they will assume that people are holding on to this guilt of I've done so many things, how could God possibly love me? And so the preachers would come and they would address that problem. It's like, you sit here, you're worried that you're not good enough, you're worried you're not worthy, that all the things that you've done that God could never love you. My friends, let me tell you about the forgiveness of God. And preachers would come and they would talk about the grace and the forgiveness of God. Every bit of it completely true. And people would have their lives transformed because yes, I feel like I've pushed God away. I feel like I'm not good enough for God. But that's not what I heard coming from this young man. And it's not what I've heard as I've talked to many people in the last 14 years. What I heard from this young man was not, am I good enough for God, but rather, is God good enough for me? That was the question he was wrestling with. Not do I believe, but is it worth me spending my life following God? Is it worth me giving up whatever I'm being called to give up? Is it worth it? Should, is it right and appropriate for me to follow God? Should I waste my time doing this? If you don't care about the problem, you won't care about the solution. That's what I feel about that now. And that's what I feel is a responsibility for us as a church. We don't hate sin because we're angry at people. We hate sin because it ruins people's lives. And we love people. And people's lives get devastated. If you don't care about the problem, you won't care about the solution. So a few thoughts. What's the right response to grace? What is the right response to grace? There's a number of things that could be on here. I've got a pretty shortened list. What's the right response to grace? Firstly, gratitude. Kindness. A lifelong commitment. Boldness. Growth in character. Humility. And grace to others. Those are some of the right responses to grace. Gratitude, we read in the Bible, Jesus healed 10 lepers. Only one came back to thank him. The point of the story is there's one person that responded to the act of grace appropriately. Gratitude, kindness. The story of Zacchaeus, a dishonest tax collector, spent his life ripping off his own people, meets Jesus one day, and hears the message of grace. It says this, that Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Kindness, response to grace, brings out kindness in people. 
a lifelong commitment. The call to follow Jesus can only be understood as a lifelong commitment. And if we've heard the message of undeserved grace, it makes total sense that we would want to spend the rest of our lives following Jesus who was so kind and so good to us. There's a strong, unwavering, lifelong commitment to faith in Jesus and that is the right response to grace. Boldness. Paul writes in Romans that the reason he can be so bold is because of the grace of God. In Acts, this boldness is seen from the apostles. We can also say that growth in character is the right response to the grace of God. In the life of Peter, just one character we could pick of many. From Peter we see in the Gospels that he's an angry guy. His mouth was faster than his brain. When Jesus was arrested, he was so afraid that he denied even knowing Jesus and then deserted him. But after having a powerful moment of reconciliation with Jesus, a powerful moment of grace, Peter goes on to preach the gospel of the resurrected Savior to thousands. He's a key leader in the first church. He wrote two letters of the New Testament and tradition tells us that he would eventually be crucified for his faith by the Romans. Grace produced growth in the life of Peter and many others. We also see grace to others. Grace to others. Matthew 18, 21, let me read this parable to you. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Jesus then goes on to tell a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring up his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then the master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him just a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Grace to others is a right response to receiving the grace of God. Grace to others. Lastly, humility. Another story from Jesus. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and did not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Grace produces humility. As recipients of God's grace, we become alive. 
We receive new life and can live as a new creation is what we read today. We leave behind all that needs to be left behind and we can move on. Once we start expressing thanks to God for his kindness, how can we ever stop? Once our eyes are open to the grace of God and his love for us, we see that grace just keeps coming to us again and again. Our reasons to thank God just keep growing. As John writes, it's grace upon grace. It just keeps coming. Responding to the gospel with resounding thanks and gratitude is completely appropriate. Responding casually or half-heartedly makes no sense at all. The grace of God changes the human heart. People defined by anger or greed or bitterness or selfishness can be completely changed and transformed into peaceful, joyful, caring people. A new creation is not a theory. It is the lived experience of hundreds of millions of people all over the world. The grace of God is so transforming that it inspires us to live better with each other. In response to God's goodness, the same goodness is built in us. The Holy Spirit starts working in our hearts and minds and we start to have God's care and concern towards people. Instead of revenge, we want reconciliation. Instead of gaining more and more, our hearts become generous. The one act of love on the cross 2,000 years ago is enough to deserve an entire lifetime of worship and praise and loyalty and devotion. And yet, God's goodness keeps on filling the lives of believers. The call to follow Jesus is a call to respond to His grace and His love. It is truly life-changing. It is not an invitation to have a momentary relief or a phase that we go through. It is a deep, lifelong commitment we're invited into. And when we understand and appreciate how much we desperately need a savior, we can only respond with joy. The biblical authors talk about the grace of God being their source of strength, that His grace is sufficient, that His grace sustains. There is a confidence that comes from that, that every room you walk into, every situation you face, any difficulty, any struggle, any challenge, you carry the undeserved, unearned favor of God with you. God's love for us is seen in so many ways, Perhaps the way he's committed to cleaning us up is one of the most apparent. People first meet Jesus. They first experience his grace and their life may be in all kinds of conditions. They may be carrying all different manner of hurts, regrets, guilt, or damage. But no matter the starting point, God has committed to walking this out with us, reshaping our character. This transformation to become a new creation, the work of the Holy Spirit, it's never complete. It just continues. One of the true joys of following Jesus is that we can look back every year and confidently see how we've grown and developed as a person in the past 12 months. That God has taken a more central role in our lives, that we're treating people more like we want to be treated. We can consistently observe the growth and the stretch in our own lives. In the light of all the undeserved grace that I have been shown, how on earth has pride crept in? Yet it does, and it makes no sense when our whole faith is predicated on God's undeserved goodness to us. How could I ever place myself as the judge who is, is not worthy of his goodness? How could I, an unspeakable recipient of God's forgiveness and mercy, how could I demand others clean themselves up before receiving the grace of God for themselves? The posture of each and every believer should be an undying gratitude and humility. I don't deserve this, but you gave it anyway. I don't deserve forgiveness, but God, you forget my sins. God, without you, I'm broken. I'm a destructive mess. But with you, I can find purpose and hope. Where is there room for pride to come in? How can spiritual arrogance dominate churches? How can believers become religious and bitter and judgmental? 
only by forgetting the mountains of grace they have needed. Only by forgetting how gladly the Lord our God gave the mountains of grace when we needed it most. Remembering the grace that I have needed, that I continue to need, that will bring out a deep and sincere humility that will keep religious pride at bay. Now that we have received God's gracious gift, the right response is to do good, expecting nothing in return. That's what we have received, and that is what we should give. Andy Stanley wrote in his book, The Grace of God, when we are on the receiving end, grace is refreshing. When it is required of us, it is often disturbing. But when correctly applied, it seems to solve just about everything. The grace I have experienced has changed my life. And I know that that is the story of believers all over the world and all throughout history. Let's commit to sharing that grace with others. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all He has done for us who are united with Christ. God saved you by His grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. There's many things in life that we do deserve, but no one can look at the cross of Jesus and say, I deserve that. Grace is the acceptance of those who cannot earn or do not qualify for acceptance. Grace is showing goodness to those who have proven they deserve otherwise. It is grace that heals our relationship with God and makes an eternity with Him possible. It is only because of grace that we have the strength to endure and maintain our restored relationship with God. Grace rewrites the story of both the reject and the rebel, the victim and the oppressor, the forgotten and the idolized, the fearful and the aggressive. Grace is God's remedy to a broken world. Grace is what we need and grace is what we have, all because of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Nobody deserves the grace of God, but it's offered to everyone. If you don't care about the problem, you won't care about the solution. But because of the cross, we can go from death to life, disobedience to passionate obedience, from sinful to forgiven, from obeying the devil to rejecting the devil, to following the sinful natures of our sinful, following the desires of our sinful nature, to embracing our new nature, from subject to God's anger, to a healed, healthy, and restored relationship with the Father. And what is the right response to grace? When we hear that life-changing message of Jesus, the right response is gratitude, kindness, a lifelong commitment, to have a boldness, to grow in character, to have a humility, 
and to show grace to others. I got a couple of questions for you. If you want to go ahead and write these down, if you have a piece of paper or a pen or you want to uh, grab a phone, take a note down. Maybe have a chance to reflect on this this week. Maybe talk it over with someone you trust. The first question is this, what's my response to the grace of God? What's my response to the grace of God? And the second thing, can I accept that I don't deserve the grace of God? What's my response to the grace of God? And can I accept that I don't deserve the grace of God? In all the Bible, there is one verse that I would point to and say, this is my favorite. I hope God's okay with that. Um, Nevertheless, I do. And there's a reason and there's a story behind why it's my favorite. You may have heard this before, but I'm okay saying it again. When I went to Bible college, I originally enrolled in a program that was, uh, in essence, it was 50% in the classroom and lectures and study and so on. And the other 50% was working in ministry and putting into practice what you learned in the classroom. So that was how the course was structured. After being there for just a few months, I started to think, you know what, I actually think there's a different course I need to be a part of. And so I unenrolled and re-enrolled into a different course. And the new course was 100% in the library. Like it was all study. It was all, um, you know, all sort of work and essays and all that kind of stuff. Uh, It worked out real well because that's where I met Megan. Come on, somebody. But after making this switch, I was about to start in this new program on Monday morning. And so Sunday, I'm in church, and I'm getting ready, and I'm, it's on my mind, and it's weighing on my mind. You know, I'm going to get up to, you know, for college the next morning, and we're going to go to class, and it's going to be all theology and history, and we're going to be looking at biblical languages and Hebrew and Greek, and we're going to be looking at Christian philosophy and looking at all these different things, that, you know, all these really, really intelligent people that have written really difficult-to-read books and all this stuff, and it's kind of weighing on my mind. And I'm in church, and I'm just sort of in worship, just like we've been doing today. And as I'm in worship, I just feel the Lord say, get up tomorrow and read Romans. Now, there's some things that when you believe the Lord is speaking to you and, you know, you need to pause and get people's advice about. You know what I'm saying? Get up early in the morning and read Romans. I mean, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You read Romans, right? So sure enough, I get up early. I start reading Romans and I'm reading Romans. Okay. 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 Got it. And I'm kind of reading. I'm kind of waiting for this, oh my goodness moment. And I finally get it. I was not disappointed. I got to Romans 5.8, and I'm going to read it to you. And back then I used to read the New King James, and that's exactly the transition I'm going to share with you. This is the verse that hit me. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I knew in that moment why this verse was so important, the timing of it. I was going to wake up that day. I was going to, later on that day, I was going to go to class and I was going to be, you know, my head was just going to be filled with philosophy and theology and biblical languages and history and all this stuff. And this was God's way, I truly believe, of redirecting me and saying, okay, all of that is what I want you to study. I believe that was the right decision. But don't ever take your eyes off this. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you remember that, everything else will be great. If you forget that, all of that's for nothing. While we were still sinners, while I was on my worst day, that's when Christ died for me. Not after I decided I was going to start following God. Not after I decided I was going to start getting my act together. Not when I decided I was going to kick those old habits. Not when I decided I was going to get rid of that sin in my life. Not then. That's not when Christ died for me. While I was still an absolute mess, 
on my worst day, that's when God demonstrates his love by dying for you and for me. The message of Jesus is a message for people who are an absolute disaster. And when they're ready to admit, I can't do this without you. I've created so many problems for myself. My life is an absolute mess. The anger of God that we read about earlier, as terrible as it is to think about, it's accepting, but it is what I deserve. Then God comes and says, man, I died for you, so that's not how you have to live. I've got a new life for you. You can be a new creation. That is the message of Jesus. It is not deserved. No one can boast. It's what we've been reading about today. So I want to ask everyone here, if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes and bowing your heads. This just gives some privacy and discretion to people around you so that we can focus on what really matters right now. You may have been in church every Sunday for the last 20 years, or you may have never heard the message of Jesus before, I don't know, but I know you're here today. This is the message you've heard. And I believe that it's in God's timing. You're hearing about grace. You're hearing about how you don't deserve it. You're hearing that what we do deserve is terrible. But God loves us so much, He doesn't want that to be our story. He wants us to receive His grace. And I want to give everyone here the chance and the opportunity to make that decision to follow Jesus, to accept that gift of grace today. And if that's you, would you mind just putting your hand in the air? I'd love to know who we're praying for. Wonderful, thank you. Amen. Anybody else? I promise I'm not going to do anything embarrassing. When I pray in a moment, I'd love to know who I'm including in that prayer. Thank you. Wonderful. Anybody else here? Amen. Anybody else? Wonderful. Anybody else before we pray? Amen. Wonderful. Good news. Love it. Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate with people that have made the best decision they could ever make today. Amen. Amen. We're going to pray this prayer. We do this at the end of every service. I want to invite everyone here. When I say a line, you say it back. And if you're one of those people that put your hand up, I want you to pray this believing that things start to change after you pray a prayer like this. So come on, everybody, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, one more time, let's celebrate with people. Wonderful.